Welcome and bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Milk and Honey. First, how are we doing? I hope this episode of The Musical Man finds you well. I had a difficult week. Oh, the ups, the downs. I was all over the place. Were you all over the place this past week? Maybe you were, but we're here now. We're checking in with each other, and I'm here to tell you it's gonna be all right. I promise. I swear. We never answered this important question the last time we got together for a main feed episode. We did not answer the question. Did our most recent Subject. Bells are ringing. Deserve to win the Tony Award for Best Musical over My Fair Lady. That is a crucial question. I cannot believe that we forgot to answer this, but we are going to do that right now. The answer is no. It did not deserve to win the Tony Award for Best Musical over My Fair Lady. The winner from that set of nominees should have been Candide. Yes, I'm saying it now. If I have said otherwise before, if I have been inconsistent, it does it matter. It doesn't matter what the musical man said in the past. It only matters what the musical man says now. Ha! Yes. So, let it be known throughout the land this is another point. We have moved on to our second point. Let it be known that Andrew Garfield has officially been inducted into the Cream Pie Cutie Club. He should have been inducted long ago per the Phantom of the Opera. He and I were talking during the first episode of the return, the revival of turn it off, and he was saying to me, you should put Andrew Garfield in the CPCC, and so I have. It's done. Before we tuck in with the show facts regarding milk and honey, this is my third point. Patty, Benny, keep a log of all the points. This is point number three. I would like to discuss a 1960 Broadway review known as From A to Z. Consider this a nice prologue to the show facts. Several book writers, composers, and lyricists made their Broadway debut via this production, including Fred Ebb, who contributed to no less than six songs, and Jerry Herman, who wrote the show's opening number, Best Gold. That was the name of the song. I was keen on listening to Best Gold, but a recording does not seem to exist. Drat! The cat! Ah! From A to Z opened in April 1960 to unimpressive reviews, it's true, but by October 1961, Herman's first complete score, Milk and Honey, was premiering on The Great White Way. We're talking about a difference of only 18 months, people. 18 months. Impressive, Jerry. Impressive. Let's get the lowdown on the show facts for that complete score, Milk and Honey, now. Show me the show facts, Jerry. Jerry! 
Milk and Honey was a 1962 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on October 10th, 1961 at the Martin Beck Theater and ran for 543 performances. The book was written by Don Appel and the music and lyrics were written by Jerry Herman. Hello again, Jerry. Herman and Appel visited the state of Israel at the behest of producer Gerard O. Striker. Oh, Striker. Yes, let's go with that. I apologize. I am more than likely mispronouncing your name. I apologize. So, Gerard was hoping to mount a musical about the newly independent country and its people. For reference, the State of Israel declared independence from the British Mandate a little over 13 years prior to Milk and Honey's premiere on Broadway. Herman, who wasn't especially interested in writing a broadly patriotic show, found inspiration in a group of tourists older women who were bustling about and taking in the sights. To quote Mr. Herman directly, Mr. Herman, paging Mr. Herman, quote, once we saw this group, we knew they had to be in our show, quote. The director of the original Broadway production of Milk and Honey was Albert Mayer, and the musical director was Max Goberman. Orchestrations were provided by Hershey Kay and Eddie Souter. Choreographer Donald Sadler. Scenic design Howard Bay. Lighting design, Howard Bay, multitasker, sound design, N.A., costume design, Miles White, and the original Broadway cast included Mimi Benzel, Molly Pecan, Robert Weedle, Juki Arkin, Diane Goldberg, Thelma Pellish, Tommy Rawl, Lonnie Saunders, Helen Burse, Johnny Borden, Seal Deli, Rose Leischer, Helen Madison, Hadi Negree, Dorothy Richardson, and Ruben Singer. Tony nods. Okay, so the production was nominated for the following Tony Awards. Best Musical, of course, but what else? Best Composer, Jerry Herman. Best Actress in a Musical, Molly Pecan. Best Costume Design, Miles White. And Best Producer of a Musical, Gerard Ostreicher. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Gerard, again, I have to apologize. So, that's five nominations in total, zero awards at the end of the evening, unfortunately. Boo-ah. The time has come for us to discuss the plot of Milk and Honey. This summary is based on a reading of the book by Don Appel. Yes, Don Appel's book. I read it. So, let's start with Act 1, Scene 1. This is going to be a meaty summary, so settle in. Settle in with a glass of wine. We're starting off in Jerusalem on May 3rd, 1961, one day prior to the State of Israel's Day of Independence. An argument between a porter and a shepherd boy draws the attention of two Americans, Ruth Stein, a tourist from Cleveland, and Phil Arkin, who is in Israel to meet his daughter's husband. Phil speaks fluent Hebrew, whereas Ruth only knows a single word, Shalom. Their conversation is interrupted by Clara Weiss, the leader of Ruth's tour group. As Clara points out, Everyone in the group is a widow, and several of the women are in search of a new husband. She then proceeds to place Phil under a microscope. To quote Clara directly from the script, Clara says to Phil, Are you here with your wife? And Phil, he takes a beat. There's a beat before he speaks, and he says, I have no wife. That beat is very important. Pay attention to that beat. Phil introduces Ruth to his daughter, Barbara, and after a bit of negotiation, Ruth agrees to spend end the day with them. Why not? Phil is flying to the desert region of Negev in the morning, so why not take a chance? Seize life by the collar. Act 1, Scene 2. 
nighttime, the same day, the streets of Jerusalem buzz in celebration of Israel's independence. The American widows watch from afar as a spontaneous horror dance breaks out. Clara is drawn into the dance, much to her delight, but when Ruth returns with Phil and Barbara, her matchmaker instincts take over. Clara is determined to see Ruth get married on this trip, though Ruth is in no hurry. To quote the script again, Ruth says, Clara, we've only spent one day together. She's talking about Phil. Clara, we've only spent one day together. To which Clara responds, so you think if you'll go with him for five, six months, you'll know him more? You think he'll open himself up to you like a box of Cracker Jacks? You should see what a prize you're getting. You have a chance here to develop a relationship. Take it. While Ruth and Clara weigh the pros and cons of marriage, we learn a little more about Phil as he speaks with his daughter, Barbara. As it turns out, Phil is married, uh uh-oh, separated, but married nonetheless. Mrs. Arkin is in Paris and presumably sleeping with other men. She categorically does not care about Phil's love life. Do whatever you want, Phil, but under the circumstances, Phil believes it would not be right to keep seeing Ruth. Barbara ignores her father's concerns and invites Ruth to stay with them at her husband's moshav, a communal farm. Ruth rejects the invitation several times. No, 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 no. Feeling overwhelmed, but upon realizing she may never see Phil again, she agrees to go. Yes, 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 yes. P.S. Ruth owns a dress shop back in Cleveland. For the life of me, I cannot recall when this information is offered by the script, but it's a key detail, so there you go. Act 1, Scene 3. The Mashav in the desert region of Negev. Barbara's husband, David, works with his neighbors to clear the land and install pieces of an irrigation pipeline. One of the workers, Adi complains about the pains of physical labor while dreaming of an air-conditioned life in America. Phil agrees with Adi. Who needs Israel? He encourages his daughter and son-in-law to pack up their things and build a new life in the U.S. David refuses. For better or worse, Israel will always be his home. If anything, Phil should build a house for himself in Israel. Who needs America? Zipporah, Adi's long-suffering and incredibly pregnant fiancé, arrives on the scene to demand they see a rabbi. Her grandparents are old-fashioned. They want, nay, demand a proper ceremony. Adi balks at the proposition, but as David points out, a rabbi can only be sent for if at least three couples from the Mashav agreed to get married. Seeing as two couples have already agreed to marry, for Adi and Zipporah's sake, the commune puts it to a vote. Should these two dopes finally get hitched. The decision is unanimous. Yes, they should. Somebody call the rabbi. Did I mention David uses pipes as stilts so he can examine a series of trees that are brought on stage and planted? This is one part of a highly elaborate dance sequence I read about. Anyway, Act 1, Scene 4. The interior of Barbara and David's house on the Mashav. Adi gives Ruth a Hebrew lesson. Phil appears with a watermelon. Several points that were made previously are reiterated for anyone who wasn't paying attention, I guess. Namely, Adi does not want to marry Zipporah. Ruth cannot live in Israel because she runs a dress shop back in Cleveland. And Phil 
still cannot live with Ruth because his wife will not give him a divorce. Actually, come to think of it, the fact that Phil's wife won't give him a divorce is new information. Look, stop badgering me. David insists no one at the Mashav would care if Phil and Ruth lived together without ever getting married, but Phil dismisses him. Ah! Clara and the other widows visit the Mashav as part of their tour. The appearance of several shirtless men sends them into a frenzy. Ah! Shirtless men! Alas, all of the shirtless men are married. Ah! The widows go on to complain of Arabs who might cross the border and abduct them in the middle of the night. Commentary. Hashtag commentary. They also have a lot to say about Phil. One of the widows, Mrs. Weinstein, says, I'm quoting from the script again, he's not bad looking for an older man. And Mrs. Strauss follows that up with this line, I don't know what Ruth sees in him. In response to all of this, Clara says, right away with an opinion, who are you, Felix Frankfurter? That's the best line in the script. Hands down, I will not hear otherwise. In case you couldn't tell, Clara is the best character in the show. It's true. Act 1, Scene 5, The Exterior of a Barn. Zipporah shows Ruth how to milk Marilyn, a goat from Kansas City. Considering Audie and Zipporah are essentially the Will Parker and Addo Annie of Milk and Honey, I view this reference to Kansas City as more than a coincidence. Paging Rogers and Hammerstein and Mr. Herman. Zipporah encourages Ruth to marry Phil as it is obvious they love each other. Audie clarifies his stance on marriage. It's not that he doesn't want to marry Zipporah, he simply doesn't want a Yemenite ceremony. Zipporah does not care. Phil informs Ruth he has bought a piece of land in Israel and plans to build a house, one they can share if she so chooses. Hint, hint. Ruth agrees to stay to the delight of everyone. Everyone, that is, except Barbara. Barbara assumed her father was having a fling with Ruth. A fling is one thing. It doesn't mean a thing if it's merely a fling. But living together unmarried? Who are you, Felix Frankfurter? Phil vows to tell Ruth about his marriage, but Barbara objects, advising him to simply let her go. During an argument with David, Barbara makes it clear she is unhappy in Israel. To quote the script again, Barbara says, Is this what you call a life? Working 16 hours a day, hoarding every drop of water and waiting for a rain that never comes? Surrounded on three sides by seven million enemies, and the only way out is into the sea. David says, those enemies don't frighten us. Barbara says, well, they do me. I'm frightened and I'm useless and I'm never going into those fields again. I hate it here. I hate it. Act 1, Scene 6. A hilltop overlooking a valley. Phil has finally told Ruth about his marriage. Though she has grown to love Phil, Ruth knows in her heart that living together would be wrong. In some way, they would always be hiding from the rest of the world and its judgments, and that is no life for her. Crossfade to Act 1, Scene 7. The exterior of a barn. We're back. Ruth and Phil attend a wedding ceremony for several 
several couples from the Mashav. It is unclear if Adi and Zipporah are included in that ceremony, but they have to be, right? The curtain falls as Ruth and Phil ascend a flight of stairs. Looks like sex is back on the menu, boys. Aoga. Act 2, Scene 1. The Mashav. Invigorated from his recent session of lovemaking, Phil works the land with the spirit of a young man. Barbara spoils everything by announcing Ruth has left for Tel Aviv, along with the other widows. Phil sets out for Tel Aviv, determined to find Ruth and bring her back. Barbara apologizes to David for her outburst, and he in turn agrees to leave Israel and try his hand at business in America. But when left alone, David begins to doubt himself. One cannot execute Israeli dance steps to an American jazz melody. We know this to be true because David tries and fails during an extended dance sequence, one that is positively overflowing with symbolism and pantomime. There are equal amounts of both. Act 2, Scene 2. The Cafe Hotuk in Tel Aviv. Clara and the widows are flirting with the locals when Phil arrives. He begs Clara to help him find Ruth. Phil says, where did she go? Clara says, who do I look like to you, Perry Mason? Clara goes on to chastise Phil for keeping his marriage a secret. She reads Phil for filth. Get a load of this monologue. Clara says to Phil, what do you call love? A kiss? A night in bed together? This is love? Maybe because I'm not a schoolgirl, I don't understand. But to me, love means kindness, consideration, honesty, a companion, someone to go with, to be with, someone if you wake up in the middle of the night and you want a glass of water, he should bring it to you. How can I tell you where Ruth is when she herself doesn't know? She doesn't know where to go or what to do or to whom to turn. Leave her alone. Give her a chance in her own way to find out what is right for herself. Go back to the Mashav. When she wants you, she'll find you. Moments after Phil leaves the cafe, a Mr. Solomon Horowitz offers Clara a glass of water as well as an invitation. Oh, Solomon is a widower. Ka-ching. Solomon is in the diamond business. Ka-ching. The widows are astonished by their friend's luck, but Clara cannot help but wonder. Would her dead husband, Jaime, approve of such a match? His name is actually Jaime. I don't know what to do with that. Just deal with that. Oh my god. She asks Jaime directly and receives an answer from the beyond, not literally. She basically prays to her dead husband, but I wrote down <laughs> I like to think that her husband says, go for it, baby. Grab Solomon Horowitz and never let go. Act 2, Scene 3. The exterior of the King David Hotel in Jerusalem. Night. Ruth stands on a small rock bridge as Clara and Solomon return from their evening together. They arrange to meet at 10 a.m. and Solomon departs, leaving Clara to chat with Ruth. The conversation inevitably turns to Phil because why would it not? Which leads into a very telling exchange. Clara says, Ruth, why are you tearing yourself to pieces? What good will it do? And Ruth says in the script, I love you, Clara. Now, the word you in I love you has been crossed out in the copy of the script I found online. Ruth is obviously meant to say I love him, meaning Phil. Consider Clara's follow-up. Clara says, all right, so who says you shouldn't? Stay with him another day, another week, but then finish it. So yeah, they're clearly talking about Phil. Ruth would never say I love you, Clara, because she loves Phil, not Clara, right?
right? Donna Pell, did you write lesbians into this show and panic at the last minute? I will return to the official narrative while keeping an eye on you, Don. Ruth explains that her dead husband, Alfred Stein, never showed her any affection and slept with several women when they were together. A prize Alfred Stein was not. In the ten years since Alfred's passing, Ruth has never been with another man, never been with another man until Phil, of course, and though she knows Phil's wife will never grant him a divorce, the idea of being with him in any capacity is hard to shake. It's a very enticing proposal. Clara advises Ruth to sleep on it. Good advice, Clara. Act 2, Scene 4. The exterior of Adi and Zipporah's house. Adi proudly declares that Zipporah has finally given birth to a son, Mazel Tov. Hadi then proceeds to sing and dance with his neighbors for several minutes, as one does. Phil confesses to Barbara that his propensity for dithering has informed all of his greatest failures. His marriage was a disaster because he wasn't brave enough to ask for a divorce, his relationship with Ruth went south because he couldn't bear to tell her the truth, and now, look at him. Poor Phil is all alone. Ah, but hold the phone. Ruth is back, baby. She's back. But in a real over-crying-out-loud moment, Phil tells her to go back to Cleveland. Oh my god. These characters do not know the meaning of shit or get off the pot. It is also implied David and Barbara will remain in Israel after all. Fine. Sure. Whatever. Act 2, Scene 5. The waiting room at the Tel Aviv airport. Clara says goodbye to the other widows, having become engaged to Solomon. Solomon liked it, and so he put a ring on it by gum. Solomon bears an arrangement of white flowers, and when one of the widows encourages Clara to throw the wedding bouquet, she hands each of them a flower instead. Good fortune should be spread evenly. I love Clara. The widows board their plane, and Clara strolls into the sunset with Solomon by her side. Enter Phil and Ruth. Phil has decided to fly to Paris and speak with his wife. Getting a divorce will not be easy, but at this point, he would do anything to make it happen. Phil and Ruth kiss. Ruth boards the plane, and Phil turns to leave as the curtain falls. The end. A broad observation regarding this script. Most of the pivotal moments in Phil and Ruth's courtship occur between scenes. They spend an entire day together between scenes one and two in Act One. This is the day that sets the tone for their entire relationship. This day is rife with musical possibilities, yet we never see a minute of it. Why? Why does Phil tell Ruth he is married between scenes five and six of the second act? Why are we acting as if the fallout of that moment is more important than the moment itself? Do you or do you not want me to care about these people, Donna Pell? Should we cut around their goodbye at the airport as well? You have to give me more. Who are you, Felix Frankfurter? For the purposes of this week's episode, I read the 1961 book, Orla 
libretto by Don Appel via Concord Theatricals. This is a free digital rental. You get it for two weeks after signing up. It doesn't cost a thing to sign up at Concord Theatricals. So if you want to read this script, you can do what I did. You can rent a digital version for two weeks. Is this an ad for Concord Theatricals? No. We have one sponsor here at The Musical Man, and that's 5678 Coffee. We would never accept money from anyone else. Never. I also listened to the 1961 original Broadway cast album. That's it. Those are the only two sources I pulled from. It's time to talk about the score. That plot summary was so long. I hope you liked it. inordinate amount of work and work-related anxiety. Oh my god. I was not able to sit down with the Milk and Honey album until Thursday night, but when the time came, you better believe I gave it my full attention. I was feeling cozy, I was in bed, I had my eyes closed, and I was ready for action. Meow, Calgon, take me away! Herman's Overture evokes the outsized romance of silent film melodramas and the raucous energy of a ticker tape parade, but it also aims to paint a landscape of our main location. This was, after all, the first Broadway musical to be set in Israel, and Herman does an excellent job of fusing the sounds and rhythms of the West with those of his Western Asia subject. I really like the section we heard a moment ago, which emphasizes a 
delightfully dreamy piano line before giving way to the momentous chords of high ceremony. This is transportive stuff. I recommend this overture. It's so meaty. <laughs> it's like you're tucking in with a steak. I'm a vegetarian, but you know what I'm talking about, huh? Shalom, you'll find shalom, the nicest greeting you know. It means bonjour, salute, and skull, and twice as much as hello. It means a million lovely things, like peace be yours, welcome home. And even when you say goodbye, you say, It's a very useful word It can get you through the day All you really need to know You can hurry around You're bilingual as long as you say Shalom The nicest greeting I know twice as much as hello it means a million lovely things like peace be yours welcome home and even when you say goodbye if your voice has i don't want to go in it say goodbye with a Shalom is the first of several numbers from Milk and Honey to showcase the vocals of Robert Weed, who brings a chest-thumping brown bear roar to the material that would feel equally at home in a Vegas venue or an opera house. In our show-related ephemera segment, we will hear Robert Goulet tackle a few, very few, bars of Shalom, which seems fitting. Goulet and Weed have similarly resonant baritone chops, 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 chops. The Part of Shalom I find myself humming is this hello goodbye section. To quote it specifically, quote, and even when you say goodbye, if your voice has I don't want to go in it, say goodbye with a little hello in it, and say goodbye with Shalom. Quote. This won't be the last comparison I make to West Side Story, but when I hear if your voice has I don't want to go in it, I make a connection to somewhere, specifically the line, time together with time to spare. Yada. It's very similar. It is. West Side Story made its Broadway debut in 1957. Milk and Honey premiered a few years later in 1961. The DNA evidence is compelling, and I think we should look into it. Milk and Honey is definitely emulating the structure of Rogers and Hammerstein's South Pacific, in that most of the solos and duets are reserved for the story's 
consensual couple. If anything, the Milk and Honey score is leaning into this idea a little too much. Nellie and Emil may have a lot of time in the spotlight, but Ruth and Phil positively dominate Herman's score to a degree where any cutaway from them feels jarring and all too temporary. Clara has a pair of comedic numbers, and David certainly manages to get his foot in the door musically, but where are the songs for Barbara and Zipporah? Where are the duets for Barbara and David, or Zipporah and Adi? You're telling me there was no room for a Zipporah and Adi song in the style of Oklahoma's All or Nothing? Huh? Oh, come on. I call shenanigans. Audiences cannot live on bread alone, Mr. Herman. Mr. Herman. Hey, Jing, Mr. Herman! This is the land of milk and honey. This is the land of sun and song. And this is a world of good and plenty, humble and proud and young and strong. And this is the place where the hopes of the homeless and the dreams of the lost combine. This is the land that Kind of bitter and the milk's a little sour. Do you know the pebble is the state's official flower? How about the tensions, political dissensions, and no one ever mentions that the scenery is barren and torrid and arid and horrid. And how about the border when the Syrians attack? How about the Arab with the another quote from Herman regarding his view of Israel as it related to milk and honey. Quote, Everything about Israel is not perfect. I had already written the song Milk and Honey as a kind of anthem, and I said, I have to have another point of view. And I wrote the counterpoint, the honey's kind of bitter, and the milk's a little sour. That made it real for me. Quote, The point-counterpoint dynamic established by David and Audie throughout the song Milk and Honey is in line with that of Anita and Bernardo in America. West Side Story Ahoy! Ah. David and Anita stick up for the countries they call home, while Audie and Bernardo shine a light on the flaws of those countries. But the thing about Bernardo and Audie is we're never meant to respect their POV. That they make salient points is largely undermined by their crummy attitudes. So you're right. 
Who cares? You're bumming me out! I'm sorry, Mr. Herman, but Audie's pessimism and David's patriotism are not presented as being equally valid. As written, David is an imperfect yet inspiring hunk, and Audie is a petulant layabout. Audie can have his face printed on one side of the coin when he marries his pregnant fiance. Audie married Zipporah at the end of the first act. Did he, though? Does he, though? I don't know! Their names do not appear in the stage directions for the wedding ceremony. As far as I'm concerned, the jury is still out. P.S. This is the only song from Milk and Honey that goes out of its way to actually name an enemy of Israel. Whereas everyone else is alluding to hazily defined Arabs, Adi is more than prepared to call out the Syrians. There is no way you could produce this show without a page one rewrite. Am I right? Audiences would be completely flummoxed by the book's lack of specificity when it comes to international politics, and I would not blame them. You are a wonderful group of ladies. If all of us were not married, we would never let you go back home. Shalom. Shalom. Shalom, boys. Shalom. Again, no luck. So what is it? The end of the world? Pull in your belts, throw out your chests, and chin up. Ladies, look around the horizon. Head high, ladies, don't give up the ship. Look for the silver lining, you gotta go on with the show. Climb every mountain to find your Mr. Snow and always hip hop. Ladies, there's a brighter tomorrow. Sniff up her lip up. Ladies, do or die is the plan. Don't ever be discouraged, don't ever be perplexed. There's always another country, Russia may be next, so keep your chins up. Ladies, somewhere over the rainbow there's a man. Chin up. a lovely piece of trivia for you. Chin Up Ladies was written for Molly Pecan after she proved popular with audiences in New Haven, Connecticut. This would have been during the show's pre-Broadway tryout. I'm sure Pecan was fabulous in the role of Clara, but I also imagine audiences were simply eager to embrace someone, anyone, who displayed a sense of fun and humor. Oh, you mean to say you've written a song that doesn't treat love with the gravitational force of Jupiter? Yes, please. 
have at thee, matey. What I mean to say is, <laughs> if I may, Milk and Honey is drowning in these deeply serious ballads, and if you thought you were going to hear a lot of those ballads, oh, tough titty, I have to say to you, we will examine one deeply serious ballad in due time. But for now, we must focus on Chin Up Ladies. What is there to say about Chin Up Ladies? Well, it's not an especially substantial song, is it? And that's not necessarily a terrible sin. It's fine for a church cakewalk, but it's a little too quaint for the big leagues. And though Herman's references to The Sound of Music, Carousel, and The Wizard of Oz are diverting, they would feel more at home in a review like From A to Z. In a show like Milk and Honey, one that is thoroughly adult and pure of heart, they strike me as incongruous. Look, I'm all about including more comedy, I am, but this ain't exactly rattling my funny bone. My funny bone, she sleeps like the fishes. Let's not waste the moment. Let's not lose a day. There's a short chose Let's Not Waste a Moment from Milk and Honey's Menagerie of Serenades because the lyrics demonstrate an impressive maturity on the part of Herman, who was only 30 years old or thereabouts when they were written. Quote, We don't have to hear the clock remind us that there's more than half of life behind us. When you face a short forever, there's no right or wrong. I can only face forever if you come along. Quote, That is beautiful writing. It's beautiful. I love the idea that we should think of forever as for as much time as we have. Forever comes to an end, just like everything else. And this fact only becomes more startling as you continue to age. How long is your forever? Are you taking advantage of the forever you have left? Jerry is ostensibly speaking to an older audience, but unintentionally or not, consciously or not, he is also speaking to queer people. Queer people, like old people, know their time could run out at any moment, and so we grapple with the idea of how to best use our time. Who deserves it? What investments and commitments are we willing to make? Of course, not all 
all queer people are interested in romance and or sex, but broadly speaking, we have a keen understanding of time being precious and limited. Am I right? Yeah. It's not a safe world for us. No, no, it's not. Let's hear a bit of The Wedding. I love this track. I don't really have any intellectual thoughts. I always say that, but it's beautiful music. We're getting a collection of Act One songs. We're putting them together. It's a nice review of Act One. Uh, you know that old convention when we're at the end of the first act and we hear snippets from all of the songs that we've heard previously, but it's all set to this very grand processional ceremonial religious music, and I think it's lovely. So let's hear that, Patty and Benny. And now we shall hear I Will Follow You. Let's play that. In my gray flannel suit, in my new shiny car, in my split level house, with my big black cigar, can't you picture me?
Follow You is unwittingly the funniest number in Milk and Honey, bar none, end of sentence. The tonal dissonance between the music and the lyrics is purposeful. I get that. On an intellectual level, David wants to be with Barbara. His words claim as much. But on an emotional level, the character is falling to pieces, and so the music reflects his despair. He doesn't want to go to America. We know this. The problem is the result of this dissonance, which is my laughter. David is over here tearing his hair out. He is spinning out of control. He practically has one foot in the grave. And I'm laughing. Who am I? Felix Frankfurter? By the way, I found out Felix Frankfurter is a real person. I thought that was a name they made up. No, that's not true. That's a real person. Thank you, Patty and Benny, for pointing that out. Look him up. Oh, boy. I appreciate what Jerry is going for and may very well appreciate I Will Follow You with time. But as of right now, I find it difficult to take the number seriously. It rings as farce to me. No, Barbara, I'm fine. I'm more than fine. I'm great. I love the idea of going to America with you. Oh, America, what a country. It's not like I'm dying inside or anything. Barbara! Leave me alone a minute, please. I would like to talk it over with Jaime. Jaime? Yes, my late husband. Seven years I've been good And you never heard a peep And you never heard a squawk Hi me For seven years I've been good But now I think it's time We had a little talk how can you expect a woman to exist when there is just one lonely lamb chop on her shopping list when she's embarrassed by the grocer's sympathetic look as he pastes a single stamp into her green stamp book? Oh, how can you expect a woman not to want to have her dinner at a table in a restaurant so you will forgive me if I'm looking for somebody who'll permanently take me off that counter stool for when you're too 
which made her D become your personal attendant. For when they bow and say a double, you're a little like a queen that's holding court. And so I pray next income tax after my name, there'll be that lovely word, dependent. So if I want to be All right, I... <laughs> how, 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 how did, how, how did anyone, how did anyone think Jaime was a good name for Clara's dead husband? Of all the names we could have gone with, we went with that? What, 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 what happened here? Was that word not considered an epithet back in the late 50s and early 60s? It's an epithet for a Jewish person. It's been around for a while, hasn't it? I thought so. Anyway, Clara mainly wants to have a man around so she can go to nice restaurants and eat good food, and I can relate to that. Everyone's gotta eat, but not everyone wants to eat alone. It's true. Much like Chin Up Ladies, I do wish this song was funnier. Or if not funnier, maybe more spirited? Judy Holliday would make a meal out of this thing. She spoiled me. She would probably get it off the ground. But Molly Pecan is content to lean and sigh her way through this, which is a fine, it's a fine choice, but it's not especially, it's not popping for me. I like to use that word a lot too. It ain't enough for me. It ain't enough, me hearties. That's all I have to say regarding the score for Milk and Honey. It is now time to hear from our fine, fine sponsor, 5678 coffee. Take it away. Five, six, seven, eight. Okay, if you could just open your... Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, open wide. Yeah, yeah. No, no, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Hey, if you're feeling nervous, if you're feeling nervous, just remember this is a, this is a standard checkup, okay? And your friend, I'm your friend, Dr. Joseph Kitchell. And if it'll make you feel any better, do you like music? Oh, does that make it? Yeah? Okay, perfect. Hey, I was hired recently. Uh, I'm a songwriter on the side. It's true. Oh, uh, that's true, yes. And I was hired, actually, to write a jingle for... Or, uh, do you like five, six, seven, eight coffee? I can tell. Look at your teeth. They're all yellow. I recognize coffee stains. You got to do something about that. You got to use a mouthwash, okay? And oh, I'm looking here and there's a lot of grit between these teeth. You don't floss, do you? Anyway, I'm going to work on this little tune, okay? I know I want to start with, okay, open wine. Just keep your tongue down if you could. So I got this here at the beginning. I got coffee for one, coffee for one, wow, 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 coffee for one. So okay, that's all I got right now. So if I, I'll just you know, da, 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 put the tongue down. Okay, coffee for one. Coffee for one. I'm at a diner drinking coffee for one. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah, okay. Oh, shush, 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 shush. I'm gonna get all the grit here. And it's no fun. Yeah, it's no fun. Drinking coffee, drinking coffee for coffee. Coffee for one. Well, that's fun. Drinking coffee for one. Everybody's looking at me. Thinking, what's the story? Who could he be? And then I was thinking, I want a, like a big dramatic shift. And I really want to blow out, really blow out the audience's eardrums with this big powerful, like, I am the man who lost all he had. I am the man who fell through 
the cracks Had me a woman, had me a job Tongue down, fought in a war And now I'm a slob Tell me what was it for Tell me who am I now The president had had the president shook my hand, and now here I am. Coffee for one. Coffee for one. You had some in the back here. It's a, is that a, that's just a fruity bubble. Okay, getting rid of that. And it's no fun. Yeah, it's no fun. Spit. Ah, drinking coffee, drinking coffee for one. And then I think at the end there should be like a spoken line, like, keep it coming, Sarah. It's gonna be a long night. What do you think? Hello? Oh, I used too much gas. Oh, God. Final thoughts regarding milk and honey. Here we go. Milk and honey is to Israel's historically tense border disputes as South Pacific is to World War II. That's right. I'm comparing these two shows again. Seismic historic activity is occurring all around the characters in both of these shows, but that activity never actually spills onto the stage. All of that activity is happening offstage, in the wings, and sure, we can reference it every now and then, oh, those dastardly Arabs, etc. But what actually matters most are the love stories, right? We need the audience to invest in the love stories first and foremost. Will Phil and Ruth wind up together? Oh, will Nellie and Emil wind up together? Oh, global events be damned. These crazy kids are struggling. Am I being facetious? Yes. I realize a show has to be about people. You have to focus on the ground level stories of individuals, because if you pan out too far, your musical will inevitably turn into a history lesson, and that probably won't be very entertaining. I simply find it hilarious how Broadway prioritizes heterosexual romance over all else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about the state of Israel. Sure, Jerry, sure. But tell me this. Who's kissing in this thing? Kissing, Jerry. Kissing. On the plus side, if I may be a little less cynical, Milk and Honey is a love story about older people. People who have silver in their hair and spots on their butts. How many musicals can say that? Not that many. The 1962 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, and the additional nominees from that season were Carnival and No Strings. Now, the question is, we're not going to forget this time, we will ask, did Milk and Honey deserve to win the Tony Award for Best Musical over How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying? I'm here to say it should not have taken the medallion away from How to Succeed in Business. That duty, that task, should fall to no strings. No strings, I call out to you. Stand up, rise up, take that medallion from How to Succeed in Business, because I think you deserved to win that season. Haha, yes, it's true. It is now time to rank Milk and Honey against all of the other subjects we have covered here on the podcast. As a reminder, if you want to check out this ranking of ours, go to twitter.com slash musicalmanpod, access our link tree, you will find a link to our spreadsheet. The second tab of that spreadsheet will give you all of the ranking info you need. So we are going to place Milk and Honey at number 53 on our list, between Steel Pier at number 52, and Bright Star at number 54. I also have a couple of changes that I would like to announce. Come From Away is now at number 49, 
49, between The Most Happy Fella at 48 and Sunset Boulevard at number 50. We also moved Bells Are Ringing, our most recent subject in the main feed, to number 69. That is between Once on This Island at 68 and Oliver at number 70. So there you go. When it comes to show-related ephemera, I'm going to follow up on the promise I made very early on in our episode. We are going to hear a bit of the tribute to Jerry Herman that was staged for the 1984 Annual Tony Awards. That is the 38th Annual Tony Awards, I should say. And we are going to hear Robert Goulet sing a bit of Shalom as part of this opening section. It goes by in a blur. I have a feeling this is less than 20 seconds long. But what can you do? Sometimes the ephemera segment is really short. And I have to say again, if you're going to have Goulet sing any Jerry Herman song, I do think Shalom is perfect. It fits his range, his instrument perfectly. Oh, let's hear that now. If I had to sum up Jerry Herman in only one word, there is only one word that could be used. Optimist. I'm not saying that in a Herman musical, the boy always gets the girl, or this year, the boy. But if he doesn't, it isn't for lack of trying. This is a composer who doesn't recognize defeat, for whom there's always a future, and not just for people, but for countries too. show we discuss next, we will need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rodgers and Hammerstein show, The Lockhorns Are Starting a Lounge Act. Everyone ready? Then away we go! Before we announce the subject of our next main feed episode, I just want to let you know right here at the top that this episode is going to drop on Wednesday, March 23rd, all right? That is when we will return to you here in the main feed. The subject of that episode, it was the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical in 1965, and it ran for 3,242 performances. This is a big show. This is a huge subject, a momentous occasion for the podcast. And the name of that show, you know what it is, Fiddle 
Fiddler on the roof. The Fiddler is going to be on the roof March 23rd. Mark your calendars. I have to tell you, do it. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Okra Project. You can donate $1, $3, $5, or $10 a month. Let's say you donate $1 a month. In that situation, you get access, early access, to all of our main feed episodes. While everyone else is waiting until Wednesday, you will get these main feed episodes on Monday. That's true. You also get a weekly verbal shout-out. Let's do that now. Thank you for donating at least $1 a month. Andy, Elizabeth, Aaron, Jason, Jack, Vitor, Sydney, Katie, Elena, Anton, Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marcus, Rob, Shauna, <gasps> Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. We will also grant you access to 17 bonus episodes covering a wide variety of subjects. Here are those subjects. The 73rd Annual Tony Awards, a trailer review for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, a full review of the film Cats, Emma at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, Hamilton via Disney+, Plus. Documentary Now, original cast album Co-op, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, Harlow the Alligator Boy, a trailer review for Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, Vivo, the Tony Awards present Broadway's Back, Diana, and Annie Live. You also get Season 1, 12 episodes of Radio Boy, a special series for which I check in with myself via the non-musical theater songs that make me feel more like myself, and you get access to all 12 episodes of M3, The Movie Musical Man. That is a series for which we watch trilogies, trios of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. There are 12 episodes that we have produced so far, and we will return to that series in the fall of this year. It's true. Now, let's move on to the $3 a month tier. If you donate $3 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus you get a special musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. You get access to all 10 episodes of Wildcats Everywhere, the high school musical podcast, and a special one-off episode all about the one and only season of Julie and the Phantoms. $5 a month will get you everything I've already described, plus you will get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. You get seasons one and two, that's 24 episodes of All I Ask of You, a special advice series hosted by the Phantom of the Opera. You get access to our Broadway in Chicago review series, the next episode of which will drop on March 16th. That will be dedicated to the touring production of Hades Town, and you get volumes one, two, three, and four of Shout About It. These are collections of five, six, seven, eight coffee ads and musical shoutouts from the first 100 episodes of the podcast. Finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already described. Plus, you get exclusive announcements regarding future subjects of the main feed. You get season one, that's 12 episodes of The Snub Club, a series dedicated to musicals that were not nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. They were snubbed. Can you believe it? You also get access to all of our episodes of Turn It Off, a series dedicated to off-Broadway musicals. Our most recent episode dropped just last week or two weeks ago at this point. Here is what we have already covered. Emojiland, Soft Power, The Fantastics, We Are the Tigers, Bat Boy, A Strange Loop, and then in our most recent episode we covered Songs for a New World and Tick Tick Boom. Our next episode is dropping March 9th, and that will cover Dogfight and Giant. If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, please, I beg of you, write a five-star review via one or both, preferably both platforms, because we want 60 
85 star reviews, we have 53. When we get to 65 star reviews, I will finally produce that special episode all about Disney's Zombies franchise. I will, it's true. If you're streaming the show, you might be doing that through Spotify, Stitcher, Audible, or Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com. Follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Email me, send me emails. Thanks as always to Patty and Benny. Ah, Patty and Benny, we really didn't check in with you this time around, but are we wearing our beanies, our propeller beanies? Yes, I should have said that. We've been wearing them this entire time. Thank you. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and thank you to Zach Little for our fabulous intro and outro music. Ah, you know what that sound means? Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off Venus and good night.